Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I hope you'll join in the conversation today with questions or comments that you may have. You can use the chat window that's in the YouTube uh, channel screen right there in front of you. Uh, but right now, let's go ahead and get started with the, the conversation. Uh, Jeff, what are we talking about today? Uh, thank you, Drew. We're going to be talking about a letter from James that's in our New Testaments. James, the Lord's brother. We'll talk a little bit about why we believe he was the Lord's brother. And then we're going to get into the text of James. Drew wants us to encourage you, our listeners, to send comments and questions. Please don't, because you'll just encourage him. He'll think that that's something that's going to happen, and he will annoy us every week. If you start sending comments and questions, he'll get excited, and he'll want us to do that all the time. So. I'm trying to mute you, Jeff. I can't mute you. <laughs> don't pay attention to Jeff, what he just said there. <laughs> You can send us comments and questions, and uh, Chase will probably be paying attention. And if we see your comment come in, we may address it during the webcast today. How you doing, guys? Good. All I'm right. Very good. Thank you. All right. Very blessed. Um, How are you? I am fine. I am getting over a cold, and I'm doing better. So Greetings. Greetings. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. All right. So let's get into this letter uh, from James. And let's do spend a few minutes here talking just about who this James is, why we think he is the brother of Jesus. And um, Chase, I'll tell you what, why don't you just kick it off here because you, you said greetings and you were talking about that a minute ago. Yeah, so one thing we notice about James' letter, just the very first verse says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. That's how it begins. There's no long introduction here. And uh, there's another place in scripture that kind of begins like that and a place we would even call an epistle because an epistle is really just a letter. And that's in Acts, the 15th chapter. There's an epistle within the book of Acts where the early disciples had this whole debate over whether or not the Jews had to or the Gentiles had to receive circumcision before they could become Christians. And once they kind of figure that out and talk it out, they decide to send this letter back to Antioch with Barnabas and Saul, or Paul at that point, and Silas, I believe. And uh, James, who was an elder, this would be the brother of the Lord Jesus, who was an elder at the congregation there in Jerusalem. Um, it says he sat down and he wrote, from the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. So in both places, Acts 15 and in James 1, James is giving this kind of standard from what you told me jeff greek introduction to an epistle which would include the word greetings mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and it was kind of the standard way to to introduce a letter paul uses grace and peace which is a, a novel adaptation of that phrase um but the, the you're making a connection between the james who writes this letter and the james in acts 15 um, and there, there are other things that connect these two, James. One of the things we're going to see today is the very Jewish nature of James' letter. And of course, uh, when we look at Acts 15, you're seeing a man who was prominent in the church in Jerusalem and kind of advocating for the Jewish believers when Paul comes back and he says, you see that how many thousands there are of them among the Jews who are zealous for the law. They believed, but they're zealous for the law. And James is wanting to advise Paul to take some steps to make to, to be sure things go well between him and them. 
So you see a man who was very much in the center of Jewish Christianity. Joe, um, you um, you were nodding your head as if you had an observation there. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things that, and, and maybe just the the, <clears throat> the caveat that we're putting together some passages that don't conclusively prove, but are just somewhat overwhelming evidence that this is James, the Lord's brother. In Matthew 13, we have a list of uh, Jesus's half-brothers. And in that list, in Matthew 13, about verses 53 to 58, uh, I think verse 55 has the names, uh, James and Jude, or James and Judas, are uh, two of the names that are given there. Mm -hmm. And so then when we get to Acts 15, and we see this James that is mentioned, um, uh, there's no identifier for the the James in Acts 15, if I'm not mistaken. It doesn't say James, the Lord's brother right. or anything else. So again, even with that connection between Acts 15 and James, we still haven't narrowed it down that it is the Lord's brother. There are some other very prominent Jameses in the New Testament. As you said, it's a it's a Hebrew letter, but James was a Hebrew name. Uh, and so um, you have James, the brother of John. It couldn't have been that one for the fact that he was killed um, in Acts, the 12th chapter. You also have James, the less. We know practically nothing about him. Mm -hmm. And we do know a, a lot more about James, the Lord's half-brother. <clears throat> we know that early on they didn't believe in Jesus. Mark 3, they thought he was out of his mind. John 7, um, they made fun of him because they didn't believe in him, telling him mm -hmm. to go up to the feast and show himself. But then by the time we get to uh, the resurrection, um, uh, we find them in Acts 1 gathered together after the ascension. We find uh, Jesus's mother and brothers with the apostles, about 120 in all are listed there, that, that group. Among them would be his, his brothers, according to Acts 1. And so we do know more about this James. And so we kind of putting all of that together then draw the conclusion that this is probably the James of Acts 15, who is also the James of the book of James, that missive. And then uh, he would be the half-brother of, or he would be the brother of Jude, who wrote the, the, the postcard that we have toward the end of our New Testament. And by the way, I just want to say, I use the word missive there. I feel really proud of myself. That's a word that I've never used before. Um, uh, and uh, so I'm just. And then um, if Iv gets married, she's Mrs. Iv. Um, so, so you mentioned Acts chapter 13, I mean, Matthew chapter 13, where the half brothers of Jesus are mentioned. It mentions a James and a Jude. And, and just before we went on uh, live here, you mentioned that in Jude, the first chapter and the first verse, Jude, who writes that letter, identifies himself as the brother of James. So you've got a James and a Jude there who are brothers. Right. And then Paul in... Uh... <laughs> okay, folks, some behind-the-scenes humor, which we will not describe. So Paul... Um, I lost it. <laughs> yes, Paul in Galatians. Paul in Galatians 2, 
uh, mentions James, the brother of the Lord. So you have a James who's the brother of the Lord. You have a Jude and a James who are brothers to each other. There are a Jude and a James who are brothers to Jesus in Matthew, the 13th chapter. And James, who writes the letter, certainly seems to fit the James uh, who was mentioned in Galatians 2 and whose work is described in Acts 15 and Acts 21 because of that uh, focus on uh, the, the, the gospel in Jerusalem among the Jews. The, and so, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as we get into the letter. So that's not a very organized presentation of, of, of the evidence, but all of that leads us to the idea that this James is the brother of Jesus who writes this. So, so Drew reminded us, and Joe, you mentioned it, that Jesus' brothers before the resurrection did not believe in Jesus. And now after the resurrection, you have two of them who write letters uh, that become part of the New Testament. One of them, this James that we're talking about, very prominent in the church at Jerusalem in the latter half of the book of Acts. Uh, seemed like there was something else. Oh, I did want to mention this, and this will kind of lead us into our discussion of the letter. You mentioned James was an Old Testament name. It sounds kind of like an English name to me, like King James. <laughs> I knew as soon as I said that, that, oh no, James is not, the, the word James is not. <laughs> but James is the English version of Jacob. Right. And oh, people okay. don't often make that connection, but that's what it is. And, and if you go to the French, uh, the French would be Jacques. Isn't that right? James yeah. in French is Jacques. Yeah. Well, Jacques. There you get closer to the Jacob. But if you open, if, I, if I'm looking at my Greek New Testament where it says uh, in the introduction, it says James in my Greek New Testament, it says Jacob. Yeah. <clears throat> nice. So there you go. So it is a Hebrew name, which lot, lots of these people had Hebrew names. That's no big deal. But as we look at this letter, uh, it's a very, very Jewish letter. In fact, I've got a couple of quotes here. I've often said it is the most Jewish letter in the New Testament. And that's saying a lot because the book of Revelation is certainly heavily Jewish. Everything going back to the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews is prominently Jewish. Book Romans. of Romans. Say what? I would, I would even say Romans to a degree is very Jewish. But it's not written to a Jewish audience. Um, true, James true. seems to be written to a Jewish audience with a Jewish perspective. And so here, here's the quote that I, I'll read to you. Um, let's see here. Uh, this is uh, Thyssen in his introduction to the New Testament. He says, there is no more Jewish book in the New Testament than the epistle of James. And then he says, not even Matthew, Hebrews, or the apocalypse would, would um, stand in the way of James being number one. And then he quotes somebody uh, named Hayes, who says this, and I thought this was interesting. If we eliminate two or three passages containing references to Christ, that would be from the letter of James, the whole epistle might find its place just as properly in the canon of the Old Testament as in that of the New Testament. Um, and, and that's really right. When you see what's said in the book of James, nearly everything in the letter you could find in the Old Testament. Uh, in so, fact, I, I have a sermon that I do on James and the book of Leviticus. Um, uh, James and Leviticus 19 has a tremendous uh, parallels in it. Uh, so uh, and your, your point is absolutely right. So you may want yeah. to bring that out today for us. You may want to talk a little bit about that. But let's do, let's, let, I want to just read one passage from the book of Acts, and then let's just 
start walking through the book of James. And we want to do two things this afternoon, I think. We want to highlight the Jewish connections, the connections between James and things in the Old Testament, things between James and Matthew. But then we also want to spend some time, and maybe we can do it together as we go through it. We can do these things simultaneously. But we want to spend some time looking at the practical instruction in James, because James is a very practical book. The passage I want to mention in Acts is one to which we've alluded. It's in Acts the um, 20... First chapter. I'm going to mention Acts 15, first of all, when there's the controversy in Jerusalem concerning circumcision, and Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem um, to deal with that. And Peter stands up and he makes a point based on Cornelius when God sent him to the house of Cornelius. Paul and Barnabas stand up and they make a point based on what God has been doing amongst the Gentiles where Paul and Barnabas have been preaching. James stands up and he appeals to the Old Testament scriptures. Um, and then in Acts chapter 21, when Paul returns to Jerusalem, we have this passage in, I'm going to start in Acts 21, verse 18. And in and the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when we'd saluted them, he rehearsed one by one the things which God had wrought among the Gentiles through his ministry. And they, when they heard it, glorified God, and they said unto him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of them that have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, and have been informed concerning you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. And, 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 and they go on further and say more. But James and the brothers, the elders there in Jerusalem are concerned about Paul's reception among these Jews who believe, and they have some advice for Paul, how can he can head off, head that off and, and, um, and dis, 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 dissuade them of the misinformation they have heard concerning his teaching. Those things I point out just to help us see James right in the middle of the Jewish context in the church in Jerusalem. All right, thoughts? Yep. I mean, it ties perfectly to James 1, verse 1. James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Um, so what do you guys, I mean, there would obviously be, a, in our minds, a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, um, or Jacob, um, funny enough. Um, I hadn't thought about that connection there. Uh, but then, of course, thinking about spiritual Israel, the how we would be in, in uh in the Lord's church now, kind of the fulfillment of, of so some of Peter uses similar language, and I think Peter is talking about spiritual Israel. I I don't know, just the 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 letter itself in James, I'm kind of inclined to think he's writing to to Jews. Yeah, uh, Jewish Christians in general. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good point. And and, and it's interesting, it's not just the Jews uh in Jerusalem, but the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, call attention to a couple of things. We'll, we'll want to come back to chapter one, but I want to call attention to chapter one, verse twenty-seven. Um, James is 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 a very practical letter, and one of the things he does is he confronts the ritualistic traditionalism that existed among Jews. You see Jesus confronting that all the time. The the Pharisaic tendency to uh, just uh, put the focus on the outward practice of the law and not necessarily 
what it called upon them to be inwardly. And so James is making that same point. <coughs> and, and this is really the context when he's talking about faith and works. Um, you can claim to have faith, but if you don't put it into practice, it's meaningless. And um, so in James chapter 1, in verse 26 and 27, he says, If any man thinks himself to be religious, well, certainly the Pharisees among the Jews were, were renowned for thinking themselves very religious. He says, if any man thinks himself to be religious while he bridles not his tongue but deceives his heart, heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before our God and Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That admonition to think about the fatherless and the widows and to watch out for them is something that we see repeatedly in the Old Testament. We see it in the in the in the in the Pentateuch, we see it in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter one, when God is saying to his people, you know, I don't even bring your sacrifices. What what is this trampling of my courts? Why even come into my temple if you're not going to do the right things? And then he appeals to them to to look out for the fatherless, look out for the widows. Um, you you see it in the Psalms, um, in Psalm 82, where there is a challenge to the judges of Israel who were showing partiality. Um, there's this reminder to look out for these who would be afflicted. So that that just in and of itself is an Old Testament way of, of highlighting the need to, to be practical in our religion, to look out for those who have need. Yeah, I, I, kind of along those lines, I would say that really a theme of the whole book is kind of addressing the tensions between the rich and the poor brethren um, and the different places that they are. So mm -hmm. I, you go, go back to the beginning of chapter one, um, he really begins this idea of trials and enduring through them. But that thought is what seems like somewhat interrupted by him talking about a humble brother exalting or boasting in his exaltation, but the rich is gonna boast in his humble circ uh, in his humiliation because he's gonna pass away like a flower of the field. Um, and then, of course, you get into chapter two, where you have James describing what it looks like when they come into synagogue together, where they're treating the rich one way and the poor another way. And then you get to the end of chapter four, where he addresses those who say, come now, we're going to go to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. And then the same thing at the beginning of chapter five. Um, He's talking about come now, you rich people who you're going to weep and well in misery. So it at least seems like to me that that might be a recurring theme throughout the letter as well. It's just not just the need to be generous um, to to all, especially the orphans and the widows, but to the poor in general. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus uh, rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees, and he talked about how they loved the uh, chief seats in the synagogues in verse 6. And then how they love to be called of men rabbi in verse 7. And Jesus says, one is your teacher. Against that backdrop, consider James' words. You mentioned the their tendency to uh, attach too much significance to the rich. In James chapter 2 and verse 3, uh, James talks about the one who comes in in fine clothing and they and they give him a special seat, like the chief seats. Or in James 3, and it has puzzled a lot of people what James means when he says, be not many of you teachers, but against that backdrop of Jesus' teaching where the Pharisees were craving that title, rabbi, 
uh, for the sake of the title. And, and James is saying there's responsibility that goes with teaching. Don't go around looking just for the title, just for the sake of the title. All of that fits together. I'll tell you another thing that reminds me of the Old Testament. In James chapter 4, in verse 4, James says, you adulteresses. The King James adds the word adulterers, adulterers and adulteresses. And, and that's, I'm no doubt, because somebody along the way thought, well, surely James isn't just talking to women, so why would you just say you adulteresses? Why not adulterers and adulteresses? But James is not just talking to women when he says adulteresses. The Old Testament concept of God's people <coughs> being married to God and being guilty of adultery, spiritual adultery, when they went off after some other god. You see that in, in many places in the Old Testament. I especially think of Ezekiel 16. And so James is, is using that, that idea from the Old Testament when he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? You're committing spiritual adultery when you go and chase after the world. You're not being faithful to God, who is your husband. And that's true for all of us, whether we're men or women. The church made up of men and women is the bride of Christ. So. Let me tie that back to chapter two to a certain degree, because in, in his effort to help them understand just how awful it is for, to treat the poor this way, um, he tries to explain it to them by what the scripture said, love your neighbor as yourself. And he makes the point for the same one who said, do not commit adultery, do not murder. Um, whichever one you break, you're a lawbreaker. And he attaches that to this very sin of partiality or favoritism, mm -hmm. favoritism that he's addressing. Um, so he's trying to help them understand how serious it is by attaching it to what they would have known to be in the law. In Matthew chapter five, uh, Jesus says, um, I got to flip back there. Matthew chapter five in verse, um, actually it's Matthew chapter six in verse 19. He says, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust consume. James in James chapter five talks about your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and your silver are rusted. Again, very similar language. Uh, verse four, James uses the expression. Um, this is in James chapter five and verse four. He uses the expression Lord of Sabaoth, which is Lord of hosts, which is an Old Testament expression, not one you see often in the New Testament. In chapter 5, verse 7, you have the reference to the early and latter rain, which mm -hmm. was a, an expression that you see in the prophets often about God's blessing. Um, chapter 5 of James, verses 12 and 13, uh, the admonition against swearing by heaven or by earth. Uh, and we think of Jesus teaching on that point both in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 23. There's just so much in the book of James that harks back to the Old Testament and then also very much especially Jesus' uh, admonitions regarding the Pharisees in the book of Matthew. Je Joe, you were going to talk a little bit. I thought maybe you were going to talk a little bit about connections between James and Leviticus. Uh, I'm happy to do that. I'm just enjoying uh, these connections that you all are making. So I'm, I'm learning uh, some things here. I appreciate that. Uh, so in Leviticus 19 and uh, verses 13 through 18, um, uh, you have a uh, neat little pericope there that uh, missive oh, and pericope in one webcast. <laughs> see, I, I'm, I'm, I'm recalling all of the scholars that I've listened to and trying to throw out, you know, uh, uh, rather extraordinary words here. 
Um, don't ask me how to spell any of them. Um, but uh, in, in Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 13, you might notice Verse 13 uses the word neighbor. You shall not defraud your neighbor. Mm -hmm. I think verses 13 and 14 go together. And then verse 15, uh, the end of verse 15, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. The end of verse 16, don't not take your stand against the life of your neighbor. Verse 17, you shall surely rebuke your neighbor. Verse 18, you shall love your neighbors yourself. And so you have five different um, statements given regarding the, the neighbor um uh, there in that section so that that really is that's a that's a paragraph there that ought to be understood and again i think that 13 and 14 go together for for not defrauding and that would go along with in, in verse 13 go along with not cursing the deaf or putting a stumbling block before the blind you know thinking you're going to get by with something because the deaf can't hear you or because the blind can't see your stumbling block so that idea of the word neighbor is almost exclusively limited in the New Testament to quoting it from Leviticus 19.18. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you find that here in James, the second chapter, and in verse 8. But it also he talks about the neighbor over in, uh, in chapter 4, and now I've lost the verse on that one. Um, uh, I have to uh, go back and look at that again. Um, uh, chapter 4.12. Uh, thank you, 412. Yeah. Uh, good, Chase. Yeah, very good. Appreciate that. Uh, no wonder I couldn't find it. In the New King James, it doesn't use the word neighbor. It says judge another. <laughs> um, but if you think about in verse, so I'll just mention these, Leviticus 19, 13, and 14, don't defraud others uh, or, or put stumbling blocks or curse others. In James 5, 4, he talks about defrauding holding yep. back wages that was what he specifically said in Leviticus 19:13 don't don't hold back wages he says that in James 5:4 he talks about don't be impartial in James 5 uh, in Leviticus 19 and in verse 15 don't do injustice in judgment well that's James 2 uh verses 1 through 11 or so uh one uh, yeah and then don't be a talebearer in Leviticus 19.16, I think would match up really well with James 4.11 and 12, speaking evil of your brother. Don't, uh, you need to be willing to rebuke your brother uh, when they do wrong, Leviticus 19.17. That's stated in James 5 verses 19 and 20 of uh you know bringing somebody back from uh, uh the error of his way if you love somebody if you treat them as a neighbor you're going to rebuke them you're going to correct them when they need it in leviticus 19 18 he says don't bear a grudge james 5 and in verse 19 almost the identical words don't grumble against one another and then ultimately in leviticus 19 18 um uh, he says uh love your neighbor and that's specifically quoted in james 2 8 so it, it really does look like to me that I mean we've said this in multiple ways, but James just kind of has his his Old Testament scrolls spread out on his table as he's writing uh, uh, this letter to uh, the the Hebrew Christians here. Also, correct me if I'm wrong. One of the few places in the New Testament that we find a quote from the Book of Proverbs, isn't that right? Um, uh, James four and verse six. Yeah, Hebrews 12 definitely quotes from Proverbs yeah, 3. Yeah. But, but not very often. And so to, to think about, you know, such a powerful, practical book like Proverbs, we find it then quoted, uh, one of the few places it's quoted is in uh, James 4 
Um, oh, and that's Proverbs three as well. That's interesting. Right. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Good. Good catch. So we we have Pharisees who became Christians. Paul was a Pharisee. He became a Christian. In Acts fifteen, it was some Pharisees in Jerusalem who stood up and and said these Gentiles who are being converted need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. You can imagine there were a number of Pharisees who became Christians among the, the, the Jewish people. And one of the things that is characteristic of that section in Leviticus that you're talking about is very practical instruction. And Jesus confronts the Pharisees throughout the book of Matthew and and chastens them for their emphasis upon the the formulaic, the, the ritual, the traditions of the elders, washing of your hands, those kinds of things, and not paying attention to the practical application of God's word, <coughs> the breaking of the Sabbath that they were all concerned about, which wasn't a breaking of the Sabbath. And Jesus talks about the practical idea of healing on the Sabbath, as opposed to the Pharisaic idea of um, certain distances you could walk and, and all that kind of thing. So, um, so then you come to James, and we have this very, this 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 kind of bringing everybody's attention back to what the law said, and and say, look, there is a practical meaning to God's law, and if we're going to be servants of God, we've got to love our neighbor, we've got to do rightly. So let's spend a little bit of time here, turning our attention in the book of James to the lessons that we ought to take. Uh, from James about how how practically we need to serve one another and thereby serve God. Can I, can I tell you all one that jumps off the page to me? Please. It, it was one that I had only made a connection to the last time I preached through the book of James. So in chapter five, he begins the chapter by continuing a really uh, calling attention to the rich and needing to weep and wail over their riches. And I like the way he says this in verse four. He says, look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out. The outcry of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of my translation says armies. But look at look at verse five. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So he says in verse five, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Those who are rich, you. You're like a, a pig or a cow, probably for a Jew, uh, some some kind of farm animal that you have fattened up just for the day of slaughter, and you're not thinking about what was to come. Well, I had not made enough of a connection. When you keep reading, he turns his attention in verse 7 and says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient uh, with it until it receives the early and late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. So in verse five, he's condemned them for fattening their hearts. And instead, he's telling them to strengthen their hearts in verse eight for the coming of the Lord is near. I had not noticed that. And how often are we sitting there taking and spending time fattening our hearts, indulging ourselves in all the worldliness when instead we actually need to be strengthening our heart, working it, exercising it to prepare ourselves for the coming of the Lord. You know, that, I don't know. I had never noticed that. So I just, I, that stood out to me last time. But just, just you're highlighting verse five, you've lived delicately on the earth. I tell you what, that's, that is a, um, that's a challenge to a lot of us. I, I feel like I have lived very delicately. Um, yeah. And when we, 
when we take stock of how delicately we live and how important some of that is to us, um, it, are we being generous enough to help those who don't live so delicately? Um, and if yes. not, are we, are we fattening ourselves up for the day of slaughter, so to speak? So. Right. And if, if only we would spend the amount of time we've spent fattening our hearts and instead strengthening our hearts. Mm -hmm. Um, Man, that 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 convicted me the last time I went through this book. Mm -hmm. Good connection, Mike. Your your idea of the the idea of fattening and making a connection with animals and so forth. Um, you know, one of the strongest prophets, in my judgment, of the Old Testament would be Amos. Um, and in Amos four, he talks about the cows of Bashan who are sitting on their couches, you know, luxuriously, you know, calling out for more wine, you know, just just living it up while crushing the needy in Amos 4.2. So, Joe, I've wow. never seen a cow sit on a couch, much less ask for wine. Well, so you know, I have seen cows sitting on the hoods of cars. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I think it is possible. What, know, is Amos talking about? <laughs> what is Amos talking about when he talks about the fat cows of Bashan? He, he, he's specifically condemning the wives because he talks about that they're calling for their husbands to bring them more food and drink. Yeah. Um, and so it's these wives that are just sitting at home, living up, you know, uh, sitting on the sofa, watching soap operas, eating bonbons kind of uh, mentality while they are at the same time crushing the needy. Um, and and those, are, those just go together so often. There's nothing wrong with enjoying um, the 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 blessings the physical blessings that god has given us abraham was rich job was rich both before and after you know there are some really good people of the bible who have used their riches for good things nothing wrong with that but at the same time we need to make sure that we're not just living for those things again the connection between james and the sermon on the mount uh pointing that out there there is there's an interesting, and we went through this some years ago. Joe, I think you may have been a part of the conversation. Some of us went through this, um, studying the book of James together. And there's an interesting tension between rich and poor in James. And I guess part of the question is, who are the rich that he's talking about? Um, and is his audience primarily the poor, and, he, and they are preoccupied with wanting to be like the rich? And James is saying, wait a minute, it's the rich who are oppressing you. Um, I think that, for example, if we go back to uh, verse, is it chapter 2 and verse 5? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And following. Hearken, my beloved brethren, did not God choose them that are poor as to the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to them that love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and themselves drag you before the judgment seat? Um, so, you know, in our society today, the fact is we are so rich in our society for the most part. So many of us live delicately. Maybe it's hard for us to relate to this. But I think we can see this situation where everybody's wanting to be like the rich. Uh, yeah. If the rich have this, well, then I want that. Um so, yeah, I hadn't heard the question asked like that before, Jeff. I really like that. Is he talking to poor brethren who are wanting to be like rich people? 
Um, I think that I think that would add up with the beginning of chapter one, because he says, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation. He doesn't say let the rich brother. I don't know, maybe that's not a good yeah. point to make, but he sounds like he's addressing the poor. So mm -hmm. sometimes in the Old Testament, again, amongst the prophets, especially, you will have them saying something against other people who are not the original audience and who may never actually get to read what, you know, you think about, uh, what is it, Isaiah 13, chapters 13 to 28 or something like that. You know, all of those condemnations to the various nations. Do they ever get those messages? I don't know if they do or not, but it was for the Jews to to hear those things primarily, mm -hmm. I believe. You have other things that are said like that in some of the other prophets. But it may be that when he's condemning the rich here, he's he's saying that kind of out loud, maybe even recognizing that the rich may never hear this, but he's wanting the Hebrew Christians to hear that. I think that's a good possibility. I'm not going to press it either way, but I think it's a good possibility. Um, and, and the fact is, if we are rich, we need to listen to it. Um, and if we're poor, we need to listen to it and not to be led astray by that. A, another key passage in that conversation, I think, is James 4.1. Like what Chase was saying about chapter 1, you lust and do not have. You know, these were these seem to be people who were desiring to have more mm -hmm. and causing conflicts. And so all throughout this book, he's kind of weaving through this idea. Yeah. And, and what are the rich doing? The rich are oppressing you. The rich are, are trusting in themselves. The, the rich are withholding the uh, wages. And, and, and you're wanting to, to rise to that class. You know, uh, you, you've got the wrong goals. Yeah. They're they're arrogant. They say, look, we're going to go to such and such a city and we're going to go make a profit there. And yeah, yeah. that's a great point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, let's go back to chapter one and let's start. We only got a few minutes here to go. We've got about eight minutes, but let's go to, back to chapter one and read through um, the first few verses here and talk, talk through it as we go. Let's start in verse two after James greeting. Well, I'll start in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are of the dispersion, greeting, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into manifold temptations, or you could say many trials. When you fall into those things, count it a joy, knowing that the proving of your faith works patience, or another translation would better say steadfastness. Patience or steadfastness have its perfect work that you may be perfect and entire lacking in nothing. So I guess let's stop there. There's, there's a mouthful right there in verses two through four. I yeah. think, I, I think of, of a parallel in, in Romans five, where Paul says we rejoice in hope. And not only do we rejoice in hope, but we also rejoice in tribulation. You think, why would you rejoice in tribulation? He says, because tribulation works steadfastness and steadfastness of provenness, and a provenness hope. So he's really saying the same thing. Rejoice in hope, but realize that when you face tribulation and you patiently endure it, you go through doing what you're supposed to be doing, even in the hardship, that makes you stronger, which gives you more confidence in, in the hope that you have. Uh, it's easy to use athletic illustrations. I've always used running a race. The Hebrews writer uses that in chapter 12. When you're running a race, um, it's easy to start out running fast and think you're doing really well if you're a distance runner. But the key is when you've run 
um, a mile of the race, uh, I used to run the two mile and the two miles, eight laps around the track. And, uh, you get back on the, on the backside of the track and the wind's blowing the wrong direction and your stomach feels like it wants to crawl out of your mouth and your legs are burning. And, and that, that's when it's hard to keep running. But if you keep running, then, then you're going to get stronger. And, uh, so, you know, go ahead. And the whole concept of running is it's resistance training. The, the ground is resisting you. And same with lifting weights and other things like that. I mean, the whole idea is the stronger the resistance that you go against, the easier it becomes. And what was resisting me was my own mind. I would get yeah. it in my head. I just can't do this. I've got to stop. I, there was one race where I just walked off the track. I, I was on that back back leg and I just, I just turned into the infield. And I didn't have that strength to, to get through it, or at least I didn't know that I did. <laughs> and spiritually, I think that's a lesson for us. I think that's what James is getting at here. When you face these hardships, don't give up then. Don't quit then. That's when you're going to make yourself spiritually stronger. Well, and I like the note he gives in verse four. Let endurance, my translation says endurance there instead of steadfastness. Let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. A mark of a mature Christian is our ability to face trial and come through on the other side. And uh, it's one of many marks of maturity that the New Testament writers would talk about. And so if we, if you think yourself to be a mature Christian, ask yourself, how did I do in the last trial that I went through? Take us to verses five through eight. Let's talk about wisdom. Joe, you want to read it? Sure. Turn my page back. Um, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So um, we can ask wisdom. God will give us wisdom. He does. Well, I'm not sure. I kind of doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> then you're not going to get it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. This idea of being double-minded, this idea, uh, uh, on the one hand, I think, well, I should ask what, but I don't think I was going to, I don't, you know, when you're double-minded, you're not focused on the things of God and you're not going to get what you need. Um, and you're going to be unstable. Uh, but we can't ask for wisdom. And how does God give us wisdom? Well, uh, probably a few ways. I mean, first way I think about is his word, what he's written down for us. I mean, he's imparted it through the different apostles and the different writers of the Bible. And so there's definitely wisdom to be gained there, but we got to be willing to go read it, access it, you know, take the time it would take to chew on it and think about it. Re reflect back to the book of Proverbs. Uh, you know, you have the simple and the naive. Uh, how do they gain wisdom? sometimes through experience because they mess up and they learn better, but sometimes by watching the wicked, um, uh, you know, by, by reading God's word and also observing what is around us, um, God provides opportunities for us to, to gain wisdom. Uh, that's what Proverbs says, you know, watch these individuals um, and, and you can learn. So uh, God, God gives us opportunities uh, through life. 
Mm-hmm. Chapter 24 of Proverbs, he talks about observing the field of the sluggard. Yeah. Says, Just go go look at why he got there, and it'll kind of start to make sense. And, and so this this idea of being double-minded or, or vacillating, I, I wonder, and I, and that's where I'm going to leave that. If you guys feel free to, to say something. The, the idea of, uh, uh, yeah, vacillating is a big word, isn't it? Thank you. Um, and uh, vacillate. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of, kind of wavering, tottering between two different opinions or whatever. I, I'm, I'm thinking through. Well, what are the two? You know, the double-mindedness. That so, there's two. What, what are the two opinions that he's wavering from? I wonder if one of them isn't this worldly wisdom of uh, that he's going to talk about later on in uh, the book of James, in uh, James three thirteen through eighteen. You know, is he? Is this man trying to decide, do I want the world or do I want God? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Do you guys have a thought on that? I haven't thought that far. I, I, I'm, I haven't thought that far. Well, uh, when, right. when, you, when, you, when you get a better answer, help me out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're out of time today, guys. Uh, but maybe maybe next week we'll continue and uh, just work on a little bit further through in the yeah. in letter to James. All right. Thank you all for listening. Uh, We appreciate your tuning in to Bible Quest and Lord willing, we'll see you next time, Wednesday at 3 p.m. Same time. And uh, God be with you.